This is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello, hello, welcome along. Nice to have at your company. This is Enter Sad Men. This is episode 24 of Enter Sad Men. My name is Steve. With me, as always, are my chums, Richard and Mark. This is the next leg of our odyssey to fill a Hall of Fame, um, a league table of hard rock gold from the years 1970 to 1995. We review three albums every time. We review them, we rate them, and then we rank them, chuck them in our Hall of Fame, um, see where they're going to be at the end of the episode. There are 69 in there already, so we're three more to add to it in this episode. If you want to know more about it, check out the website, entersadmen.co.uk. Lots of good stuff on there. Links as well to our sort of Facebook and Twitter feed, Instagram page, and you can access the podcast on there as well, anything you've missed before. As I say, so if you have been with us before, you do know the score. These three albums that we choose are kind of puked out of our faithful tombola. Mark, you'll have to remind me because it's a long name. What is he? It's the Tico Torres Tombola of Topics and Themes. Um, and last time round, he vomited up number, well, I forget which number it was, anyway, corresponded to the year 1992. So, episode 24, we are looking at three albums that we have chosen from that year, 1992. Yeah, quickly round it. What did you go for, Richard? So, I went for the debut album from the Stone Temple Pilots, and it's called Core. Okay. Well, if you hadn't have done, Mark would have done, of course. But, Mark, you probably went for something else, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I was obviously very tempted by the Stone <laughs> Temple Pilots, uh, as I was by uh, other um, primarily grunge bands. But in the end, you know, I just thought, no, I'm, I'm going to be unpredictable and uh, I'm going to go for a bit of early 90s kiss. So I've gone for revenge. Excellent. Non-makeup era kiss. And you? Steve? It's an album called Double Eclipse by a band called Hardline. Kind of vaguely remember it back in the day. Not sure I gave it enough time. Uh, and I'm glad I have done over the last few days because it's been a good listen. And that's the one we're going to kick off with because we always do these things chronologically. I know it's all 1992, but that was the first one of the three. So I guess before we get cracking with this, we should have a little listen to uh, the best bits of these three albums. Yeah. 
go. There's a little taster of what we've all had in our ears for the past week or so. And we better kick off with the first of them. And let's hand back to Steve and he's going to take us through Double Eclipse by Hardline. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. I am. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Well, this was an interesting album shout and i'll tell you why we did go for this it's because on the last episode well i did bon jovi's seven eight hundred degrees fahrenheit and mark weighed in with a bit of q5 and no disrespect rich because I, lo- I do like rush i love rush a lot but it was just lovely to get a real good flavor of the 1980s so i thought i'd go back there even though this is 1992 this just feels like an 80s album let's just quickly sort out the uh, the basics of it as i say it's called double eclipse um released in april 92 it was recorded in about a six month period before that on MCA label. And if you're thinking how they got their debut album on MCA, we'll come to it when you hear the makeup of the band. So it's 56 and a bit minutes long, and it's produced by, and here's the clue, Neil Shearn. Um, and it was produced at AM Studios and NRG Studios in Hollywood. So the band was, um, but they were brothers, Johnny Joelli and Joey Joelli, with the vocalist and rhythm guitarist. And they brought in Neil Shearn and, they, and Todd Jensen and Dean Castronovo on um, guitar, bass and drums respectively. I can't tell you anything about chart positioning or sales because it just didn't factor. It just simply didn't factor. That's just how it was. But it's a really, really interesting story. So, I mean, Johnny was 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 a decent musician as well. And he'd actually been a drummer. He started out life as a drummer, playing drums in a couple of aspiring East Coast wannabe bands. They moved west, him and his brother, and started performing in a band called Brunette. They're by now they're in L.A., and apparently this band was quite a decent deal on the Sunset Strip. Uh, record company execs were looking at them and people were thinking, you know, the Joe Ellie boys are, de- are good musicians. You know, there's a future in this. But they folded it in 1990. Apparently, they wanted to be like Nelson. And I don't remember Nelson. Do you boys remember Nelson? Well, I've not looked into them, but they weren't very good by the sounds of it. But um, anyway, the Joe Ellies, that's what they aspired to be. That's where they were going to go. That's where they were going to go until they bumped into Neil Shearn. And it's one of those really sort of weird meetings. Apparently, Neil Sherman's going out with their sister. They met up around the studios. Because I said, the Joellies were working in and around music at the time, just hadn't quite made it. Nothing had quite clicked. Johnny said to Neil Sherman, um, this is Neil Sherman of Journey fame, for those of you who don't know. Do you fancy teaming up, doing something together? He'd just finished recording an album with Bad English. And Neil Sherman said, yeah, I can do, but I want to bring Dean Castronovo along for the ride, who was the Bad English drummer. And... Johnny was in no position to argue, said, yeah, that's fine. And then they brought in Castronovo. And as I say, they also brought in Todd Jensen as well. And the story is that during the day, Shern would be in the studio, finished putting the finishing touches to Bad English, up at his house on the Hollywood Hills. Johnny Joelli would be there writing songs and waiting for Neil Shern to come home in an evening. And then Neil Shern would say, yeah, no, that's good. And that's shit. And let's work on this and let's work on that. And before you know it, they started writing songs and, and then it just, it just clicked and they went into the studio and it all came together. And obviously, if you've got the name Neil Schoen attached, you're going, to be, uh, you're going to be a big deal. And musically, it just worked very well. All the contacts were in place. MCA took it on board. And um, bang, you've got this really, really impressive debut album that was off the radar massively in 1992. I can't remember the reason why I bought it. I'd like to say it was because of a radio play or an MTV show or something. But as you both always both know, if you weren't singing about some kid called Jeremy or Teen Spirit or wetting a bed, you weren't on MTV or or radio in the early 90s. And, And so a band like this, which is very much 
reminiscent and nostalgic from the previous decade, I think, with edges on top just didn't get any play but anyway i must have bought it on spec i remember giving up on it after about four tracks not really going back to it and i'm glad i have i think it's it's been a really fun listen i've really enjoyed it and there's some good good music on here i don't know what you boys think i don't know if you've enjoyed it quite as much as i have i think i probably have actually i mean wow they completely passed me by it was lovely this week to discover something that I would have gone out and bought myself uh, in 1992 if I'd been aware of it. So what a what an absolute gem. Wow. Well, we'll get on to talk about it. There's some stone-cold good stuff on that album. Richard? Yes, I've enjoyed it too. I'd sum it up in the phrase, a good old romp. As you both know how much I love Neil Sean in terms of journey and love bad English, he kind of sensed that he was allowed to get to his more rockier, harder side on this so there's, there's some absolute corking riffs that we'll no doubt talk about but yeah it's it, it's just been great fun to listen to and side one kicks off with life's a bitch four minutes 22 seconds yeah which uh, to me we're just straight back into the 1980s it's it's a proper driver it just it feels like the 80s but bigger and it's interesting what you're saying about neil shenner I, I just think he's um he's basically got got a band to run here isn't he he's in charge of this from top to bottom, I think, because um, obviously he's produced it as well. And, you know, he's the star attraction and you're getting a big flavour. I, I think it's a really, it's a great opener, a nice big deal. Enjoy it a lot. About two thirds of the way through the album, I, I've, I've got a note here uh, that says, so much of this album is lifted by Sean's guitar work. Without his contribution, this would have been a quite ordinary album. Oh, really? Hmm. Okay. It's still yeah. been a good album, but this uh, Sean definitely elevates. Oh, yeah. It, doesn't yeah, it? I agree. And that's evident on this track as well. Yeah. Well, there's no point in asking the third member of the jury for confirmation of that fact, is there? <laughs> Back to the romp. He's just gone into the studio and had some fun, hasn't he? Yeah, the fact that he brought um, Castronovo over from Bad English, and, and it's, it is clear that in the production, the drums are really much to the fore in this. Good old-fashioned sing-along starter, this, isn't it? Sean's just constantly playing licks of one sort or another. He doesn't stop through the entire song. So, yeah, yeah, great. That's yeah, a good, solid opener, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, second track's really interesting. It's called Dr. Love. I just loved, I loved the riff into this utter beast of a track. I just love this track from top to bottom. But when that riff kicks in, it's just dynamite, utter dynamite. Brilliant song. Yeah, I love this. Love this. It's um, it's it's utterly kind of, you know, it's just driven, isn't it? It's um, This riff is a, an absolute monster. Given we're t- going to be talking about Kiss imminently anyway it does kind of lyrically the narrative does kind of retrace the steps that kiss took with calling dr love doesn't it instantly the first time i heard this i thought it, it's very very hard to write a rock song called dr love <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. completely different yeah um, you, you have rather name checked something else haven't you certainly yeah they, they doff their hats to lots of different bands i mean let's be honest throughout this album there's no harm in that but an interesting footnote is that the song wasn't written by them. It was written by a guy called Mike Slamer, um, who went on to form a band called Steelhouse Lane. And I've listened to a couple of tracks of what they do. It's really good. Another melodic rock band, if you want to call them that, um, from the States. And then Slamer, who'd written it, and he's trying to stay with me on this, Slamer, who'd written the track, put it on their debut album in 1998 called Metallic Blue. So he'd either, in effect, covered his own song or 
just kind of rewritten it. But you know what I mean? So anyway, he wrote it six years before it appeared on Steelhouse Lane's David for Johnny Giovanni and the boys. And it's, um, yeah, it's a fantastic number. There aren't many better hook lines on this uh, uh, chorus hook lines, are there? I mean, it's just, it's been in my head all week. It just gets in there and stays there. Got a fantastic groove, this song. Yeah. Really, really good groove. Okay, so, and Dr. Love makes way for rhythm from a red car oh, again 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 it's just such a good tempo another proper rock song we, we haven't talked i mean i know it's johnny joelli's band we kind of know he's been eclipsed but boy could the man sing he had some lungs on him i mean he could really really sing and i i, I saw an interview with him when he was um he was with neil shern and 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 he was speaking with real sort of humility about thinking, you know, am I good enough? Am I a good enough singer? He obviously worshipped the ground that Steve Perry walked on, you know, um, and, you know, we all know one of the great rock singers of all time. And he was very, very wary of the fact that, you know, Shern had shoehorned with Perry for a long part of his career. And, you know, would I be up to standard? Would Shern approve of what I do? And, um, yeah, nothing to worry about. This this voice is, is just top rock notch. I, I can't speak. I cannot speak through this. Yeah, so this track is faster. I mean, it's a real driving riff. And as you say, I think his voice is is superb. And I I could imagine that Neil was more than happy to have a full-on belter of a singer. This track is just brilliant. He's making full use of the distortion pedal on this, isn't he? Uh, And interesting, you talk about Johnny Joelli's vocals, because the note I've written here is I just really love his vocal on this. Everything works on this track. It's got... A riff that gets up and won't get back down is fabulous hook lines. Some of the licks that Neil Schoen plays in this are just absolutely delicious. And then the sound gate, just fantastic. Yeah, and then putting it back at the end. It is, it's, it's a proper, proper beast of a track, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. If Neil Schoen really did produce this album, then hats off to him because the, the production is, is fantastic. Okay, so three tracks down, track four. And you know this, you, you know at some point what's coming with an album like this, don't you? You just know at some point, somewhere down the line, there's, there's a ballad and you're just praying it's good. This is change of heart, which equals change of mood, change of tempo. It's not saccharine ballad as such, but this is where I stopped listening to it 30 years ago, I think. It's not great. But yeah, the chorus doesn't help either, does it? It's all a bit naff. I'm afraid not even Neil Sean can save this one. That they have three goes at a ballad on this album. True. They nail one of them. He nails yeah. one of them. Yeah. And and the other two are just a bit ordinary. Anyway, so we'll 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 tick off change of heart as something that shouldn't happen, but it did. But there you go. But anyway, but the, the the bottom line is that by giving up on it on the strength of that, it means I didn't therefore fully appreciate the magnificence of everything, which is the trap which follows it. One of two songs on the album where among the writing credits was the name Jonathan Kane, also of Journey fame. Kane, incidentally, is one of seven people listed as writers on this track. I haven't got a fucking clue why it takes seven people to write a song, but, I mean, how does that happen? Uh, Anyway, there you go. I love this. I think it's a fantastic track. It's got a nice keyboard line. Wonder why. Yeah. I, I can hear Journey doing this, or Survivor, actually. Mm. I mean, I thought, if this is on Slippery When Wet, this is the third single. I think there's a lot of Bon Jovi about this, I really do. And it's a top ten smash, by the way. But that's true of all these bands, isn't it? All, the, all these bands that kind of slip under the radar, a lot of the stuff they do, and the same was true of Q5 last week, you give it to a different band, a bigger band with a bigger following and a bigger name. You know, on this album, we've got 12 tracks. You've probably got 
six top 10 singles on this album in the hands of a different band. By done by someone else. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we can all name check those bands because you, you can you can feel so, it's, it's so obvious, isn't it? Where, where, where the roots are in, in this sort of music. Um, and Bon Jovi is a definite example on this track. I think this is real sort of high school rock. I really, really enjoy it. I think this song's okay. It's fairly standard. There's, there's nothing that really, really stands out. I'm more with you probably, Richard, on this particular track than with Steve in that I really like it, but I don't think it's great. But what I would say is I think it's the best of all of the mid-paced tracks on this album. And side one finishes with Taking Me Down, which again is hugely capped. Catchy, not complex, once more, certainly not complex by any stretch. And it was the first single off the album. I don't know how well it did. I don't think it did well at all, particularly. It wouldn't, as I say, it wouldn't have got much radio play because of what was hogging the airwaves back then. But what I, did, what I did think was how much fun were they going to watch live? And, and they, were, they were apparently going to tour this year. They had four dates in Europe lined up. I mean, the band nowadays is Johnny Joelli plus four others. It's a kind of Y&T thing. Well, they're Italian now, aren't they? So I see, yeah. Yeah, they've, they've all, all, all the other band members are Italian. But still touring and, you know, please God, you know, normality, resumption. If they came, if they came along next year and some of the venues they were playing weren't big, so I sense a trip to the South Coast wouldn't be beyond them. They're not playing the O2 anymore, <laughs> if they ever were. Then I'd go and see them. No questions asked. I think we'd go to Italy to see them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes. Yeah, good song. Again, fantastic riff. Obviously, they felt they needed to do a song that had sort of the riff and then a, and a, and a break with the vocals and the drums and the riff comes back in and, and that, that kind of song. I think the riff is fantastic. They could have done more with it as opposed to just do a sort of traditional break. But it's good. It's good. Yeah, I think it's all right, actually. It, it's um, it's not the greatest side closer in the world. It, I, I think there were better tracks on the album. And I think it's, it's that old story again, isn't it? That side one, once you get past the first three tracks, it's it's a bit erratic. Okay, so if, Mark, if Mark's of the opinion that Taking Me Down isn't the greatest side opener, a side closer, sorry, then... Um... I'm not entirely sure that Hot Sherry is the greatest side opener either. Um, this is the beginning of side two. It's not their song's cover of a song written by a Canadian band called Streetheart. We put this on their 1984 album Buried Treasures, know nothing about it. I just I just think this is one of the more average songs on this album. I like it. Have you um, have you heard the original by Street? No, I haven't. I mean, it's dreadful because I, li- I listen to it. If you listen to it, you think, why did they ever choose it? You know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I listened to it and I thought... There's no way I'd cover it because it's just appalling. But in Neil Sean's hands, alchemist that he is, he turns it into gold. They've done something with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really, really like it. It's what they are. It's, it's radio-friendly stadium rock, isn't it? I really, really like it. The thing I like about this song is how it lifts and fades. There's lots of nice little levels to it. That's a good opener to a second side. So proving what I know about these two anyway, that they've got completely bad taste. We move on to a track called Bad Tape, which is, again, another real kind of happy rocker powered along by um, Castronovo's really sort of sharp, snappy drum work in this. I think it's really kind of, you know, machine gun stuff. It's brilliant. Magnificent solo uh, with, with a kind of atmospheric interlude and then the big finish. It's a, it's a, it's a good Good rock track. Aerosmith meets Skid Row, I put. Is a bit too similar to Wanted Dead or Alive by Journey. Sean's guitar riff is is very, very similar. And actually, even some of the phrasing of the, the verses. One of the weaker songs on the album for me. But good, good fun. This is the point at which I, I wrote the note about Neil Shun's contribution 
lifting the album because I think this is a perfectly ordinary song that is lifted and elevated because of what he does with a guitar. It's got a nice riff, but the riff is too low down in the mix, really. You can't really hear it, which is Neil Sean's fault, obviously. To, to borrow a phrase from Richard last week, he's mixed himself out of it. <laughs> so I'm, now, I'm guessing of, of the three ballads that Mark referred to earlier, two were misses and one was a hit. I'm guessing this is the other miss, which is... I have a one-word note. It reads... Yuck. This is Can't Find My Way he's talking about, friends. Yuck. <laughs> That's it. That's all I have to say. Yuck. I have two words in my phrase uh, for this, which is lighters out. It's just that kind of ballad. <laughs> I get lighters out. I don't get yuck. I like you, I don't like you. That's unbelievable. It's it's pretty mellow. Of course it is. I mean, it's a ballad, it's a sing-along. It's five and a half minutes long, which ought to be too long. But it, the track gets better as it drifts on. I, I, I quite like this. But then I like Silent Night. What, what kind of a judge am I? So. <laughs> well, I think that says everything. You've answered your own question. <laughs> there are some similarities with Silent Night. Yeah. Make no bones about it. This is a six and a half out of ten job. I mean, no more. But I think it's good. I think it's okay. I think it's fine. I'm, I'm only 0.6 of a point behind you. But in in I think what I mean by yuck is, A, we've got three ballads on the album. Does any album, even if it's 12 tracks long, really need three ballads on it? That's question one. And if you are going to put three ballads on an album, make them good ones. And actually, if you're a you know, if you're a six and a half out of ten, then arguably there might have been another choice, or or you have an eleven track album. I, I prefer Change of Heart to this. This is this is my low point on the album. Oh, do you? That's really interesting. I prefer this to Change of Heart, and I don't particularly like Change of Heart. Um, I just I think this is this kind of redeems itself a little bit towards the back end, and I, and I've always thought as it goes on, I I. I I actually get to enjoy listening to it a lot more. But, yeah, it's it's clichéd and it's, it is what it is, which is a lame thing to say. It just means I can't think of anything else to say, but it is what it is. Right, I'll be there. I'll just come straight to the point. Anyone else getting a lot of Van Halen in here? Obviously, post-Diamond. This could be a 5150. Uh, oh, sorry, you meant Van Hagar. Yes, exactly. Do I get Van Halen? No, I don't think... I'm not sure I do, really. You will do. You will do. It wasn't a connection I made. The, the opening chords are pretty much the same as a song called In The End by Rush, which is off of uh, Fly By Night. Nice open ringing chords to start it, and then it could just sort of settles into a good groove. After Can't Find My Way, this, this lifts up again. So quite yeah. like Roof off, hit the road. That's what this is, absolutely. Yeah. No, um, I like this, yeah. It was apparently the, the closing credits of a film that I've never seen called Rapid Fire, a Brandon Lee film. Does that mean anything to you? Bruce Lee's son, isn't that right? Randomly. Yeah, this is all right. This is all right. And we're heading, we're, we're in the sort of um, last orders part of the album, really, aren't we? And um, pick up from where we were with Can't Find My Way. Um, and so we sign off with, well, there's uh, there's a track called 3191, which is a really, really nice piece of acoustic Spanish guitar by Neil Sean. And you're thinking, yeah, okay, acoustic Spanish guitar, yeah, well, that's just such a glib and daft thing to do, but it's really nice. Um, and, uh, and it does actually segue quite nicely into In the Hands of Time, which it just drifts into it, which is the kind of farewell ballad, a bit more oomph than your average ballad, and gives us one last chance to savour, you know, Sean's magnificent six-stringmanship. I actually think this is, a, I, I just think this is a really, really lovely, this could be a disaster if it's wrong, finishing off on this note. It's not. It's not. They've got it right. Uh, they absolutely nailed it here. 
I think. I love it. I love the Spanish guitar, and I love the way the Spanish guitar is is kind of there's a motif of it in the in the hands of time. I think <clears throat> lyrically and vocally, it's very heartfelt. I don't think it's particularly contrived. I don't think it's sugary. I think it's a really really good out track. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a yeah really good slow song, isn't it? I, I don't really feel it's a ballad. Like the orchestration in it, yeah, ebbs and flows really nicely. I don't know. I just sense Neil Sean's guitar solo in this, or, or several several sort of solos and licks. He obviously decided right if this is going to be the last track on the album, I'm going to really go for it because uh, his soloing in this song is fantastic. So I've written down here, Sean's guitar solo elevates this to the extraordinary. I mean, you you, you instantly think you look at the sleeve and you think six minutes eighteen. That's that's got to be way too long. Although, as we will discover later, there's clearly no barrier on how long a last song can be. But <laughs> I just think this, as you said, that the way this this flows and the way they bring it back at the end, and it's six minutes, 18 seconds, but the last minute of it is just a, a really beautiful piece of guitar work from Sean against um, a nice background. And at the end, I, I was just left, you know, the needle comes off the album and you're feeling quite emotional. You know, it's a really lovely way to finish an album and to the extent that you want to play the whole thing again, knowing that you're coming to this as, as a farewell. I think well, it's brilliantly judged. I think this track does what music should do. I think it moves you. Yeah. You know? And, that, and great, great music does that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was the hardline story for a while anyway. According to Joelle, the record label dropped them uh, because they said grunge was God, which, as we know, it was at the time. So they broke up just a few months after that. Sean went off to do something with Paul Rogers, I think. And hardline didn't reappear again for another decade when they brought out the originally and innovatively named Hardline 2. And, and yeah, and they are still going now in different forms. But this has been a good listen. So, boys, let's have some highs and lows. Richard? Low for me, probably change of heart. And the highs in the hands of time just shaves the opener. Mark? Can't find my way. Yuck. Yeah, stand by that. It took me, I think, a good hour to get beyond rhythm in a red car. I just absolutely fell in love with that track there's there are some really really good tracks on this album but that is the standout one for me i don't like change of heart i, I mean i genuinely don't like change of heart i've got a, a succession of songs in the high eights um and everything gets a nine um which is you know the pick of it for me that's been brilliant fun i thoroughly enjoyed that i'm glad i i'm glad i revisited them and i hope um hope you boys have enjoyed listening to them over the last week as well and so we move on in our odyssey of 1992 we move it forward by a month when we team up with a band who are somewhat better known than double than uh, hardline and mark or yours kiss opening album sleeve notes yeah so uh kiss make their second appearance on the podcast and this time though we're jumping forward by about uh what just under 20 years um, to 1992, May the 19th, 1992, as Steve says, recorded over the course of, well, more than a year, punctuated by the death of their previous drummer, Eric Carr. So uh, it was a, a troubled journey onto the shelves of the record stores. But this was Kiss Out of Makeup, signed to Mercury. It's a record that's um, thick end of 49 minutes long, and it sees them reunite with their producer, Bob Ezrin, whose last collaboration with the band had been the, well, it depends which side of the Kiss circle you're sitting on, but it was um, the music from The Elder, which you either absolutely adore or you think is an absolute dog's breakfast. But 
suffice to say, he didn't have anything else to do with the band until this point, by which time, of course, they'd been out of makeup for close to a decade anyway. They recorded this album at a number of different studios, actually seven studios. They managed to uh, they managed to infiltrate to lay this one down. And this is a band, yeah, at this point, Kiss are, I think, probably pretty directionless they'd had a massive two massive hits in the late 80s 87's crazy nights uh, 89's hot in the shade by the time the 90s roll around and grunge is with us this is a band that hasn't got a clue really what it what it wants to do it's a revolving door of of um, members um, and they've lost that kiss sound so i kind of brought this album to the party really with no expectation one way or the other of how it might fare under the Enter Sadman spotlight. So the band at this point is Paul Stanley on lead and backing vocals and rhythm guitars. Bruce Kulick is on lead guitar and backing vocals following the departure of Ace Fraley. Gene Simmons, obviously ever-present, bass, lead and backing vocals. And then Eric Singer, primarily on drums, although Eric Carr, who died of heart cancer about six months before the record was released, is also credited with backing vocals and a writing credit on the album as well. It did pretty well, actually, commercially. Went to number 10 in the UK and was on the chart for three weeks and made the uh, made number six in the Billboard 200. So it was... Um, it was a pretty successful album for them. It's widely perceived to be the best of Kiss's um, out of makeup um, uh, releases. I think most Kiss fans would probably have a big long debate about that. It's the first time. So a, a few kind of firsts and bits of trivia from from the album. It's the first time that the lead single Domino featured a solo Simmons lead vocal. Ahead of recording this album, they hired a market research company to identify what it was the fans wanted. And the result um, was, well, more Demon, hence the greater number of Simmons solo vocals on the record. They also wanted more leather and less glam. So that kind of saw the band moving very significantly away from the the sort of ultra permed and um, and sort of bejangled look that they'd had in the late late 80s. Vinnie Vincent was brought back after his fairly acrimonious departure from the band following um, the Lick It Up record. Um, he was brought back to help with some of the writing because Stanley and Simmons both accepted that he had contributed quite a lot to their first album, Out of Makeup. So he co-wrote Unholy, Heart of Chrome and I Just Wanna. Um, but of course, because it's Kiss, it all ended in tears anyway and counter lawsuits and court action and God knows what else. It also features a couple of ghosts. So Kevin Valentine ghosts on drums uh, on one track and um, a sort of long-time Bob Ezrin collaborator, Dick Wagner ghosts on lead guitar on one track as well. So there you go. That's Kiss, early 90s, Kiss Revenge. Um, how did you boys get on with it? It's interesting you say that it was recorded in so many studios. I didn't know that. But one thing I felt about the album was it didn't feel particularly cohesive. But really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, certainly there is more demon on it, isn't there? There's a lot more attitude. It's interesting you say about the, the glam piece, as we'll come to it, that there's, no, there's still a, one or two classic Paul Stanley moments in this album, which I totally enjoyed. And yet again, for a lot of the tracks, thank goodness they have their tongues firmly embedded in their cheeks. 
Steve? Yeah, that's what this this album's been a, a kind of comprehension issue for me because um, you, you've clearly got two very different sides of the same band here trying to fuse two very different models together, in fact, more than two. And so there's the recipe for a mess, which it isn't. Is there enough old school Kiss there for old school Kiss fans to enjoy? Yes, there is. And as, as Richard's mentioned, there's Paul Stanley's vocals are unmistakable. There's enough about this that old Kiss fans will enjoy all this sort of stuff. But there's less of it. This is a much, much heavier album. This is almost like a it's a departure, very much a departure from what they were doing. This could have been an absolute dog's dinner. Fair play to them, because it's not. Missteps galore, but a lot, a lot of fun in this and some proper heavy metal. And that's not anything you could said about Kiss down the years. And that's nice. Yeah, this is a band that had never, ever been in any way uncertain about its identity until this point. So... For, for a band that was just a merchandising machine to reach a crossroads and go, well, what the hell do we do now, was really interesting. And so they set out on a road, as you rightly identify, Steve, to be heavier, and they, they carry on with that um, for the rest of the 90s. Well, we ought to listen to it then. So the album uh, kicks off with a track called Unholy. Now, worth pointing out as well that a bit like Hardline before it, this is a 12-track album and six on each side. This is one of the tracks, as I said, that was co-written by Vinnie Vincent. Uh, I think it's a really good opening track. I think it's full of intent. I think it sets out where Kiss want to go with it. It marks the second mention of the word incubus on the podcast. (laughs) Following Marillion um, back in episode 15. I think it's great vocal from Gene Simmons, cracking hook line. The break in the middle of it, I thought, was not dissimilar to God of Thunder. Yeah, there's definitely some echoes of God of Thunder in this, aren't there? It's got the classic, unholy, great big shouty sing-along chorus. It's interesting that you read about Kiss bit, not quite sure of their direction because I think they've always taken cues from what's around them and they're brilliant at reinventing themselves what I thought was obviously this is the first album they'd have released post the Black album by Metallica and obviously though Kiss Kiss were never going to go grunge and things like that but I think with you know the other big thing that came became mainstream in 91 around 91 was 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 seriously heavy rock more accessible end of thrash was was happening as well i just think they worked out okay so where do we need to reinvent ourselves this time you know hats off to i have to say i'm not a big fan of the gene simmons vogan i'll bring up god of thunder again because that's obviously the exception because just when you see it live you almost don't actually care whether he can sing it well or not it's just a performance and i'm yeah. guessing unholy live would have been a good watch clearly without any of the histrionics and paraphernalia that goes with a, a conventional Kiss concert. But what, what I would say is Vinnie Vincent, it's no coincidence that three of the best tracks on this album had his hand on them. I agree. Some similarities there. But Unholy gives way to um, Take It Off, which is just, this is Kiss at their brilliant and misogynistic best. They are absolutely on top form here. It's infectious. It contains my favourite lyric on the whole album, which is, wave your panties in the air, lick your lips and shake your hair. Classic Paul Stanley. Absolutely brilliant. It's also, I think, got an outstanding solo from Bruce Kulick as well. Paul Stanley is channeling his inner Mark Bolan in this song. There's no two ways about it. Kiss just sounds so much kissier when Paul Stanley's on the mic. No two ways about it. Oh, absolutely. 
adore this track. It's my high point on the album by quite a long way. This is classic. So we go back to kind of the, I suppose, the territory that Unholy was stalking. It's a bit heavier, a bit more demonic, I suppose. It's got Paul Stanley vocal on it. This almost goes back 10 years. It feels a bit like where they were at with Lick It Up. To my ear, it feels a bit by the numbers. It's a bit predictable. It's all right. You know, it's, it's, it's an average track. Yes, I've not got a lot to say. Enjoyed listening to it. It starts off quite heavy, then it sort of lightens up and becomes a bit more traditional. Well, messy, surely, because it's, it's not the first time it happens on this album. Where, as I've said, this kind of, you know, this confusion of styles, it emerges in a couple. I just don't think this is a great track at all. This is where they kind of got their identity wrong a little bit, and it's just a track that doesn't work for me at all. No, I agree with all of that, actually. It's almost like they're trying too hard, really. Okay, let's move it on. So we're now over the hump of the first side, long moving our way down to the end of side one. This is the first track on the album where Simmons and Stanley share vocal duties, which traditionally has always been a fairly common approach for the band, for them to share the vocal, but not so much on this one, probably because the market research said everybody wanted a bit more Simmons. It's a fairly typical Kiss track, isn't it? It is a bit spinal tap, isn't it? <laughs> It's whole lot of rosy meets big bottom. Well, it's it's big bottom in just lyrically as well. I mean, the bigger the cushion, the better the pushing. Yes. Straight out of spinal tap. Got Not the, the only mention spinal tap we'll get tonight as well. <laughs> um, I quite I, I quite like this. I like that. There's kind of a funky beat to it that I it just about pulls it off. Do you also enjoy the the random scatting, Paul Stanley? No, I mean not really. No, but I just think the track's a bit of fun. I don't think it's. I, you know, it's inoffensive. It's not a highlight of the album, though. No, me. definitely not. Move on. Okay, so I'm not even going to introduce this. I'm going to leave this to Steve. This, ladies and gentlemen, is God Gave Rock and Roll to You too. Steve? The track they play when the lights go up. Yeah, that's the one. It's just seriously awful. And were there not a, a story involving Eric Carr, which just about re- retrieves it from turkey status, and that means you're giving it for all the wrong reasons. I'm letting my emotions get the better of me. It, but it is a, it's just awful. I do have one thing to say. If they, when they play it live, I love it, and it's still awful. Well, there you are. That's the Kiss experience, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sentimental indulgence, isn't it? It's there because of what happened to Eric Carr, who also sings backing vocals on it, appears in the video for it on drums. The last contribution he made to Kiss before he died. It shouldn't be on the album, but we forgive them because it's Eric Carr and they want to honour him in some way. That's absolutely fine, yeah, for me. How did it make it onto the album then? Because obviously this was used on the Bill and Ted sequel, wasn't it? Bogus Journey. Yeah. I'd always thought that they'd been asked to create this for the film and then they decided to stick it on this album. I don't know why they didn't just do the film, fine, take the money, but not put it on the album because it just completely out of place i think you know at the end of the album we've got eric carr's audition jam so we've got the very first thing that eric carr did with kiss on the album and this is the very last thing maybe it's just that i suppose they've been out of the studio for so long this was the first single as you say and they didn't have a b-side to stick it on did they because they've not done anything for a couple of years have they so that's where it should be just a b-side of a single yeah move on okay everybody we've got a man-sized predicament and it's a big one (laughs) so track six halfway through the cd or it closes side one of the album whichever version whichever uh, format you've got um it's it's the only song on the album credited solely in songwriting terms to Simmons. It's got 
quite a lot of rap or spoken parts, which Simmons explained was largely because he wrote the bass line as he had done with Deuce. And then he just began rhyming stuff. So unlike a normal song where you would get maybe a guitar lick or a bass line, then you build the melody and then you add the vocals, just like Deuce, he did it the other way around. So he had the bass line, then the lyrics, and then the melody came after that. So that's kind of why the, how the song came to be. Um, I quite like it. It's right. It was. It got to number twenty six on the Billboard chart as a single. I like it. I think it's, it's cheese and class rolled into one. I've called. It. I just think it's um. There's a great vibe going on there. I mean, if I'm being mischievous, the, 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 he speaks rather than sings. So he's a better speaker than singer. But this is also Gene Simmons. It is most sinister, especially when the subject matter I think is a girl who's not old enough to vote. So I probably really shouldn't love this as much as I do. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was slightly conflicted about how I felt about the song as well, Steve, if I'm being it's honest. It's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very guilty. Not in a good way. This is Kiss do ZZ Top from the guitar picking at the start and then just the, the shuffle. Uh, obviously, it's a bit heavier. It's, it's got a real ZZ Top feel about it. Now you say it, actually, vocally, it's yes. very... Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so Domino closes off side one. So side two opens with uh, the second of the Vinnie Vincent co-written songs. It's quite a nice little chanty chorus in the best of Kisses traditions. I think it's all right, but I actually think it's quite derivative. I think it's quite derivative of their own stuff, oddly enough. I have one big issue with this with this track, which is the line, you took our sexy tape conversations and sold them to the BBC. This is clearly Kiss struggling with the concept of public service broadcasting. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I, I like that line too. Okay, are we ready for some heaviness? Fucking huge riff, thou shalt not. Enormous, colossal riff. Brilliant concepts, brilliantly catchy chorus. Lyrically, it's sort of classic, modern, fuck you kiss. Very much in the vein, actually, I thought of Dance All Over Your Face from Lick It Up. I love it. And and I particularly love the guitar chorus outro, which is just enormous. Brilliant. I love that Heaven's on Fire chorus as well. That's really good. I love it. But better, but better than Heaven's on Fire. This is the perfect merger, as far as I'm concerned, of the two halves of Kiss, if you like. You know, if you've got an idea of Kiss, the sort of good time cabaret rock and roll act, then there's elements of that. But then just turn out to 11, and, and this is what you wind up with. It's really, really good song. And yeah, Kulitz guitar solos. The riff's great. Um, and his guitar solo is fantastic and the way out of it yeah it's, it's the best song on the album yeah I agree it didn't do that much for me this song it's a poor man's heavens on fire and I think the chorus is a bit of a lazy line right well let's just ignore everything that Richard said and just dwell in our own little deluded world Steve this is a brilliant song <laughs> I thought you'd love that Richard yeah me too it's not doing a lot for me alright well let's move it on so Thou Shalt Not moves from heavy metal thunder and Steve's already shaking his head <laughs> into um, a nice little ballad called Every Time I Look at You. Now, I'm going to say this knowing that Steve currently has his chin on his fist with a resigned look of when will this be over on his face. But I think Kiss have a pretty decent record with, with ballads. I suspect you put this side by side with Beth. Beth is the better song. And this is kind of a copy of Beth, so I get all of that. I mean, they do ballads well, I think, Kiss. It's not their strongest one, this one, but I think it's a solid effort. I don't I don't ever feel the need to lift the needle on 
on it, but Steve, you clearly have an issue with it. I just don't like it. It's not an issue. I mean, it's just not very good. It's, it is a it is a Beth moment and just not a good look, I don't think. I mean, it's a boy band song and, and I think most boy bands would have second thoughts about doing this. It's really, really weak. And yes, you're right. They, do, they have had a history of doing a few good ballads, but unfortunately they chose not to put any on this album. Richard? It's the Beth of this album, isn't it? When they play Beth live, I always thank God because it's time I can go to the toilet and empty some beer out of my system. So, uh, yeah, this is the, the song on this album that I go and make a cup of tea with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm in a minority of one. Okay, fair enough. It's all right. I think Paul Stanley carries tunes like this really well. But, um, okay, let's move it on. So, again, we're... Um, we're into the last quarter of the album now uh, with a little ditty called Paralysed. I don't have actually have a lot to say about this. I think it's got a really good shredding riff. It was co-written by Bob Ezrin and Gene Simmons. And it's the last of the four on the album that, just, that have uh, Simmons' lead vocal. And it's all right. I've given it a perfectly decent score. Well, I haven't. I think there's, there's a half-decent riff or two hidden in there somewhere, or three or four even. And just because Gene Simmons keeps singing it's all right, it's not all right, Gene. It just isn't all right. This is this is this is quite a mess, I think. I played it about five times in a row. I didn't like it the first time, so I stuck it on a few more times, thinking, you know, working on the basis that everything grows on you, and it didn't. It just hasn't. And then at the end, there's some crap quasi-hip-hop thing going on. As I say, there are one or two riffs in there. They're just not persevered with. They're not big enough. Don't know. Just don't like it. So what does the Arbiter of Sorrows think? <laughs> I think it's okay. They're running out of steam a little bit. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. massively. We're agreed on that. So the penultimate track on the album is uh, a little song called Summertime Blues. Uh, no, it's called I Just Wanna. <laughs> I really do think that Eddie Cochran should have got a writing credit on it, though. It's the final song that's co-written with Vinnie Vincent, and it includes the the, the line in the chorus, I just want to, I just want to, I just want to forget you. And I'm just wondering if they're absolutely deliberately misinterpreting the fur, because I heard it as something completely different. The yeah, first me one. too. <laughs> yeah. I presume they were saying fog. It's good fun. Or Stanley having some fun again. Yeah, but it just feels like it's, uh, it's kind of a Blue Peter track, isn't it? It's a, uh, here's one I made earlier. It's absolutely back in asylum stroke coming into crazy nights territory. You're absolutely right. It's, it's kiss being kiss and doing what they do well, but they've done this better. I've heard this song many times by kiss. Most of them being better. I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Steve. Very little to say on it. Yeah, I, 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 I'm fading with this album but by this stage. It's okay. It's fine. It's, it's not the worst track on the album. It's nothing they've not done before better. It's okay. Let's move it on. And the album closes with their homage to Eric Carr, his audition jam from 1981. It's called Car Jam 1981. All I've written here is, it's a tribute to Eric Carr, we'll forgive it. Yeah, all I've written here is, let's leave it to Richard. Fair enough, they put it on in uh, memory of, of Eric Carr. Yeah, it's a unremarkable drum solo. Yes, he could hold a beat. Fair play for putting it on in his memory, but it, it's an, it's an add-on track isn't it? It's almost like a bonus track. Okay, so that uh, this track obviously closes out the album, so let's get some highs and lows from you both. Uh, I genuinely don't know which way you've landed, uh, both of you. Um, so, Steve, let's start with you. Uh, well, I really don't like every time I look at you. I mean, I've given it the same mark as God gave rock and roll to you, but neither are great. Uh, and, I, and I really do like Thou Shalt Not. Richard? I'm afraid the low is, is God gave rock and roll to you for me, and um, take it off. 
It's my high. Just uh, super duper pomp. Yeah, well, I'm with you, Richard. God gave rock and roll to you too is the low and take it off is the high, but marginally from thou shalt not. So there you go. That is Kiss's Revenge from 1992. Time to move on to album number three, which um, just full disclosure, I was kind of hoping we might get through the podcast by only doing one grunge album. I, I figured we probably absolutely had to do Nevermind, even though I loathe it with an absolute passion. But, you know, uh, apparently not. Apparently we have to do more than one grunge album. So to introduce this week's grunge album, it's Richard's Choice, Richard Stone Temple Pilots, core opening album sleeve notes yes indeed i thought it was time that uh, we looked at one of the albums of this uh, particular subgenre of rock obviously grunge you know, that kind of style of music was was huge in the early 90s and i have selected uh, the debut album from uh, the stone temple pilots let's talk just a little bit about the band our second set of brothers this evening so uh, the DeLeo brothers uh, Dean on guitar and uh, Robert on bass uh, were the founder members of uh, the Stone Temple Pilots where'd they get their name apparently there were lots of those big STP oil stickers uh, in some of their rehearsal rooms they were originally called Mighty Joe Young but changed their name to uh, STP and uh, formed in about 1989 or so and after some writing and some playing and live they uh, sat down and recorded their first album from uh, the end of 91 into the beginning of 92 and Core was released in September of that year uh, on the Atlantic record label 53 and a bit minutes in length and uh, it was produced by a guy called Brendan O'Brien who was pretty big in the whole grunge scene did, did a hell of a lot with uh, Pearl Jam uh, and Soundgarden but also produced Rage Against the Machine as well as people like Aerosmith uh, and he was the uh, engineer on the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic so doing quite a lot around that time in terms of production. It did pretty well for them. It got to number three in the US, uh, number 27 in the UK, and has since done eight times platinum in the US. So they're by, by far their, their most successful album. In terms of who was there, say the DeLeo brothers, uh, Dean and Robert, and they were joined by Scott Weiland on vocals and Eric Kretz on drums there were 12 tracks uh, on the album two really interludes and i'm sure we'll have a, a talk about at least one of those later so 10 proper tracks the running order was as follows side one dead and bloated sex type thing wicked garden no memory a small interlude instrumental Sin, Naked Sunday, and Creep. And then on side two, there was A Piece of Pie, Plush, Wet My Bed, again, uh, a little interlude, Cracker Man, and then a very uh, quick tune to end the album, as Steve mentioned earlier, uh, called Where the River Goes. 
I picked this because it is one of the, for me, the sort of defining albums of grunge and this sort of style of music. It's not the same as your Neverminds and, uh, say, your, your Pearl Jams, although they were accused of ripping off both of those bands. I'll come on to a, a bit about it, but their, their influences were really, really wide-ranging from uh, inside and outside uh, rock, you know, in, including you know, massively influenced by the, uh, the likes of Led Zeppelin. I really like it. It's not a perfect album. It's got some missteps, but some good tracks as well. And it's important that we consider some of these things, even though I'm feeling I might be battling on behalf of you grunge fans who might be listening to this with my fellow presenters. But let's hear from them now about what their opening impressions were. (laughs) It's going to be me, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, so... Uh, I don't like grunge. I really don't like it. I, it's just, I find it relentlessly depressing. I find the production, I know it's deliberate, but I find it really sludgy. And yeah, I, I just think it's it, it sucks every good feeling out of me every time I hear it. So this is not an album that is for me. So, so we talk quite a lot on WhatsApp. So what I said was I was going to score this album on its musical merits rather than my enjoyment of it. As with quite a lot of grunge albums, there are some things on this that I quite like. There is a lot that I don't much like, and there's a, a lot more that I feel completely ambivalent about. But we'll get to all of that. I've listened to it maybe seven, eight times this week. I've done quite a lot of research into it. There's some really interesting stuff around some of the tunes on here. Would I put any of this on a Spotify playlist? Maybe. Maybe there's one on there that I might, actually. But we'll get to that a bit later on. Steve? I think um, I was 27 when this came out, so I'd emerged from my bedroom several years earlier. So therefore, let's not pretend that grunge generally and this specifically was for me. But I, I absolutely understand the purpose of the genre, if there is a purpose, and maybe I'm attaching something slightly more important to it than it is just music. But I get some, I get the messaging, and you know, I've got kids of my own, and I know what it's like when they're up in their bedroom listening to music, as I would have been doing a decade before this with Joy Division and The Cure and bands I was listening to at the time thinking the world's coming to an end and everyone hates me. So I, I, I get depression in music and it doesn't it doesn't offend me per se because I've been there and it's a serious thing. But I don't particularly like this album massively. I think there's a, there's a lot of good things in it. It's, it. it's quite a big album and anything that's got riffs in is always worth a second listen. So it's had that. And I think there's a degree of commerciality with it, which is interesting. Lyrically, it's very cryptic. I don't think I'm supposed to be allowed to know what he's talking about. And I can see, as you were saying, Rich, lots of other bands influences in this. I think the best sum, the best way I can sum this up is a quote I read that when in 1994 the band was simultaneously voted best new band by Rolling Stones readers and worst new band by the magazine's music critics. There in a nutshell you have both ends of a scale and, and, and the Stone Temple Pilots and grunge in general will be on all points on that spectrum because that's what this kind of music does to you. I don't dislike it. I don't think it's a brilliant album. I think there's some good stuff on it and I think there's an awful lot of saggy moments and some of it I find quite annoying. I try to get it as best I can and I don't, if I'm honest. Because <laughs> probably the closest we've got to this stuff so far was when we reviewed Chaos, uh, isn't it, and, and maybe Tool in, in that episode. Yeah, I mean, neither of them went down massively well, did they? Well, let's go through it because I think we've got to it, it's important that we do consider these and if I 
have to continue to fly the flag, bringing them in to get them shot down, then that's fine. But listen, we've we've always said this. We've always said this is a broad church, and we we've given ourselves the parameters of 1970 to 1995, knowing full well what the last five years of that period entail. You know, would it possibly involve? So no, 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 no. This is this is this is all part of the exercise. I mean, I think what's interesting with this album for me though is that I don't see it in the same sense, say, as a Nirvana or a Pearl Jam album. Scott Weiland wanted to be a rock star. He wanted to be up front, and you see some of his performances. I mean, he really was obviously you know, just right up there, and, and, you know, and then he showed again with his involvement with Velvet Revolver. Uh, and I actually find a lot of the songs on this, they've got attitude, but uh, the, the, the stories around generally are they, they wanted to set out and, and, and do their own thing. So anyway, we should give it a listen and let's see how we fare as we go through it. So let's get on with it. So I am smelling like the rose somebody gave me on my birthday deathbed is the line that opens the first track dead and bloated what i find about certainly the stone temple pilots music is in terms of the riffs and the drums actually it's it's pretty hard rock particularly on i mean on, on this opening track anyway um i hate the opening to this track i hate it because i because the thing it kind of reinforces all of my expectations scott wyland so this was a quote from scott wyland about the track he said it's not really about anything it's just a stream of of consciousness words i mean at 21 22 i didn't have a whole lot of life experiences so it's more about the vibe the angst and that kind of thing as opposed to actual life experience it's not great so it's just bollocks really lyrically <laughs> because you're not drawing in anything personal at this point other than you feel a bit angsty the, the song grows on me actually has, it has grown on me over the week but no i don't like the opening and that kind of it just sets my teeth on edge but I, I start off hating it. I don't hate it. I don't, yeah, I've scored it just under seven. So, yeah, there you are. Steve? Yeah, no, that's quite interesting. Uh, the, the first band I was in a reference in terms of, you know, who it kind of sounds like um, was Black Sabbath, interestingly. That that first riff, that's a really sort of doom-laden, mid-tempo riff that Sabbath would do very well. Quickly moves off in a kind of slightly different direction and, and, and Scott Weiland's distinctive vocals... <laughs> Distinctive. What does that mean? Distinctively Kurt Cobain, you mean? It's not. Or it's not for me. He's, he's singing greats after a while. Yeah, I can't do the whining. But it's 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 quite strong here. Yeah, I don't mind this track at all. I think it's uh, there's there's a there's a nice riff, um, and it is heavy, and I do like proper heavy. But I, I tell you the the other issue I have with this track. In fact, the the issue that I have with this album, Corrosion of Conformity, were doing this much better. Not very long afterwards, I think. So I kind of think, well, it's not as good as Corrosion of Conformity. And it's very close to Pearl Jam, who I don't much like, and Nirvana, who I really don't like, and Soundgarden, who I don't much like, and Alice in Chains, who I don't much like. So it's, it's kind of shunted down to the spectrum of I don't much like it. But but actually, with the passage of time and a bit of, of an open mind, it's all right. It's all right. I actually like Wyland's voice. And as a track, really, really good drums. They actually got... Scott Ryland's sort of singing in front of the drum kit so that they so there was that real interaction between them as they uh, as they recorded it it was dreamt up over margaritas at a, at a Mexican restaurant and yeah I, I think it's a solid opener it sets a gloomy tone for the rest of the album doesn't it yeah yeah it does okay and we go on to track two now with sex type thing and uh, connections between bands in tonight's episode the first time I heard the riff on this i thought war machine by kiss well i I've, I've written here 
fabulous riff, but it is vocally a bit out of Kurt Cobain's stable. Well, I really like this track, I, but I feel grubby liking it, given the, the narrative yeah. poster like it. You know what I mean? In sort of the first person, wasn't it, about a... And rape, rapists. Wyland always stated that it was a, actually an anti-rape song. It was just the way that the song was written. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I did look. I couldn't find it. There, there's a that we've just listened to a section of it. I know what's on my on my mind. That's straight out of Nirvana. I can't remember which song it is. It, yes, yeah, it's, yeah, it's one. Yeah, it's one of the songs off of um, Nevermind, isn't it? I never, yeah, in Bloom. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think it's in Bloom. Yeah, but I like I like this. I like it. Yeah, it's, it, there's a real sort of aggressive sort of confrontational style about it and it's um you know it's at you it's 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 at you yeah not much to dislike about this at all i think it's a kind of i know in the in grunged circles it's seen as one of their sort of modern rock anthems isn't it and it's um i can see why track three on side one of the Sun temple pilots court is wicked garden and for me another real groove to this song I, I love the guitar in it and actually I mean, to bring in some bands reminds me of a cult song this this could be a cult song yeah uh, I like Wicked Garden it's got a main riff to die for I think and it's a lot more melodic than quite a lot of the rest of the album I like Wyland's voice on this there isn't quite as much distortion on the guitars which I quite like as well yeah I really like it it's not a hugely different riff to what we heard before and what we're going to hear again is it but um, and it's fine it's, it's absolutely fine it was one of the uh, first songs that they uh, the, the brothers wrote in, in the you know, early days in terms of building the music together so this was um, this was about the loss of innocence and the, the way that um, religion kind of strips away your self-identity, apparently. There's some, some good melodies as well. There's some vocal melodies in this. So as you say, I think, yeah, vocally it is a bit lighter, isn't it? But there's a bit of, of this bridge that is a bit Diamond Davy in my head. There you go. He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know. I've sullied the good name. Fucking hell, pal. Okay, we better move quickly on then, haven't we? Yeah, we better move on before he lamps me. So, uh, track four is uh, No Memory, which is a, it's just a small guitar interlude. Uh, and then that gives way to uh, track five, which is called Sin. So after some ringing chords at the beginning, when this got into the main rip, I had echoes of Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. Unquestionably. Yeah, yeah. plodding dirge. <laughs> yeah, doesn't go anywhere. Perfectly good. <laughs> I really like the stripped back outro on it. I think that's really nice. But I find the rest of it really quite... And I hadn't made the connection with Kashmir, actually, until you mentioned it. But I found, I found the rest of it quite directionless and slightly depressing and, and tiresome. I, I, I got weary listening to it. But, Steve, this one's just for you, mate. The guitar solo on the outro is really out of the Eddie Van Halen school. <laughs> Can you just not? Can we just save it for another day? <laughs> Sin is I think I think this is a fantastic this is one of my high spots of the album. I think it's really? um oh I think it's a fantastic song. I think it that 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 cashmere riff which just beast along. It's not just there's another Zeppelin reference in in this rich as well, and then when it goes in there when it breaks down the kind of gallows pole thing with the old yeah, song. Yeah, about two thirds of the way through. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know if it's a steel guitar or not, but it kind of feels like it, that sort of stripped back section. And then it goes kind of chaotic, which you expect it to do, given that it's quite on track. And then they really, and they bring it back and sign it off really nicely. I think it's, I think it's a brilliant, I, I, I do, I'm a sucker for a good riff. And So can we just clarify, you, you've, you've given me shit for referencing Eddie Van Halen, but you have no shame over likening part of this song to Gallows Pole. It's vague. Richard will bear me out. It is quite, it's, it's, it's a, it's a lame one, but he's a decent guitarist. Yeah, he is. It does go on a bit long because, I mean, what is it? I think it's about six minutes or so, isn't it? Okay, and Sing Gives Way to Naked Sunday, the next to last track on side one, which has got a bit of a more funky feel to it, almost sort of chili peppers uh, kind of guitar and uh, distorted vocals from Scott Wyland over the top. Yep, I would have really, really liked this if it hadn't been for the distortion on the vocals because I think I think that funk element to it is really interesting, but the, the distortion makes it virtually unlistenable for me. It hurts my ears, or at least, no, not unlistenable, but not very enjoyable, and it's pretty relentless. But the one thing that I did think was that Eric Kretz, the drummer, who I think for the whole of the rest of this album, he feels like just a timekeeper on most of it, I think he really comes into his own on this track. I love this track. I really love it. Am I, am I in a minority? It's unbelievable. Am I listening to a different album? I think I was, I was not expecting this at all. You, you take my point, Richard. I, I, this is different. This is, I mean, this bounces along and, and it is groovy. Yeah. I, I think this rattles along a, a, a real good lick. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a really refreshing bit of, bit of brilliance. Really like it. It shows capability. I, I don't know anything about what they did next. And Richard, you can tell us more. I know there were some big singles or future albums, but um, this smacks of a band who were probably far more talented than I thought they were after about two or three tracks. If this had been an instrumental, I'd have absolutely loved it. It's the vocals that I can't deal with. Okay, they've obviously got Nirvana into the studio to play for them. It's a song called Creep. It's a very sort of Nirvana-esque, slow, acoustic number. Scott Ryland singing you know, very close to the microphone. Apparently influenced um, not by Nirvana, they said, but by Heart of Gold by Neil Young. Yeah, it's quite the dirge, isn't it? But like most of Nirvana's stuff. Wyland is quoted as saying it's about being halfway between being a kid and being a man and not fitting in. And Robert DeLeo is actually quoted, this is a literal quote, he said, it's in D minor, the saddest of all keys. I'd like to think that that is ironic, but part of me worries is that that's what he actually believes. <laughs> that is brilliant. I don't know why, but it, it makes people weep instantly. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Lit my love pump. Um, yeah, they need to snap out of this self-pity bollock. <laughs> this is not good. This is one of their big hits, isn't it, I think? And it's just not good. For all of the other things I'm saying about rock being a spectrum and the other influences on the rest of this album, this track is guilty as charged. Yeah, no, if, if these boys need therapy and they need to stick some quiet right on or something, that'll sort them out. <laughs> Let's flip the album over and start side two. And side two starts with a track called Piece of Pie. And grunge band comparisons, this one for me is like a classic Alice in Chains song in terms of the, the way the drums and the guitar work and, and, and the vocals over the top. So very, very percussive in its style. Yeah, I would rather eat the contents of my own head with a plastic spoon than listen to Alice in Chains, so, which probably explains why my four-word note on this is instantly forgettable grunge dirge. <laughs> yeah, piece of pie. Um, I, don't, I don't need over 
the five minutes of this, it's um, I'm just all I'm getting is a wall of noise now. There's an awful lot of distortion going on there, and it's um, it's very raucous. I'm sure there's a decent riff in there somewhere, but you, you can't hear it. Mm, yeah, it's quite overproduced, isn't it? Track two on side two is Plush, which was the track that got me into this album. I still think it, it's brilliant. I absolutely love this track. Do you know why? Because it sounds like a hybrid of Pearl Jam and Live. That's why. <laughs> I really quite like it, but it, it his voice is... I think the problem I have with Scott Wyland is that his voice is is almost like um, a it morphs into an imitation of other vocalists. So I'm getting a lot of Eddie Vedder here, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of it. And for me, this could be again even flow or pick any other song off off ten. But what I would say is the main chorus. I just think it's really really good, really well done. And I just wish it wasn't quite so derivative. That's all. I'd get on better with it if it if it didn't feel and listen and hear and and sound like a direct ripoff of another band who ultimately did it better but you are you you not just commenting generally on the very restrictive nature of grunge in general yeah Yeah. because there's a there's a a familiarity a similarity between the whole bunch of them there's a style and they're all kind of working from the same hymn sheet really aren't they this is the song that made them stars i think and it makes me aware of wyland's singing style which is really interesting because there's so many sides to it you know he whines he moans he groans he growls he can roar and he can sing i don't particularly warm to his voice but I don't mind it in this song at all. Yes, it sounds like Eddie Vedder, but then I quite like Eddie Vedder's voice, so... I mean, I like the track, so I don't dislike the fact he sounds mm. like Eddie Vedder. He can sing. There are moments on this track where it's almost southern rock. You know, it's almost that kind of deep south, Molly Hatchet, Leonard Skinner. He's got that kind of twang to his voice, and I think that's his voice, actually. And if he if he continued in that vein, I'd probably get on a lot better with this album. Mm. That's a really good point, actually, around the southern it's almost Black Crows, isn't it? Yeah. It had some sort of ragtime influences in it. So I've read that as well, Rich, and I'm 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 struggling to find that. The plush is followed by uh, another little interlude uh, called Wet My Bed, which depending on uh, what camp you're in, is either a piece of genius or a piece of shit. I'm, I'm in the latter camp. My two compatriots think it's genius. <laughs> Allegedly, the first thing that was recorded for the album, it was just a bit of improvisation um, between a couple of the guys in the studio, but I think that's where really they should have left it. Anyway, we're into the last couple of tracks on the album, and the next last track is one called Cracker Man. I bloody love this song. I absolutely love it. It's the best song on the album by a long distance for me stonking riff fabulous hook shame about the distorted backing vocals but I can't understand why they're there and as the counterpoint and the bridge is shit but it does have the advantage of allowing the band to slam straight back into the main riff mm. so no absolutely love this song this is the one that would make my Spotify playlist it's funny what happens when they shift it up a gear isn't it yeah they're a better band I almost get a bit of glam rock in this one yeah why is a cracker man I don't know I'm not sure I care I've seen reviews saying it saying it showed that they had a sense of humour this song and I'm, I'm reading the lyrics and trying to figure it out but anyway yeah no it's, it's alright it's a good song I, I'm not that excited about it cracker man is a racist term for a rich middle aged white guy who hates and wants to dominate women and people of colour so very at the moment then maybe that's something else in mind 
And Crackerman gives way to the final track on the album, which is Where the River Goes. It's interesting we're saying about when they when they speed up, they, they find their own voice a bit. Uh, when they slow it down, they start to imitate others. I mean, for me, this final track is fairly sound gardeny. It's also about four and a half minutes too long. <laughs> I mean, I was bored out of my mind by verse two. The chorus saves it a little bit. I've no idea what it's about, but I mean, if the other tracks on the album are anything to go by, it's probably about not fitting in. Um, but I don't really give a shit by this point. Right now, I either want the album to end or go back to Cracker Man. Yeah, I find this quite a hard listen, I must admit. It, I think pro- probably knowing that it goes on for eight minutes doesn't help, but it's one I can't really warm to musically at all. I'm sure it's meant to challenge me, but it just drove yeah, it's a slow, a too slow finish. With the en- energy of the previous track, it, it takes some of that away, doesn't it? It's one of the first songs they wrote. Well, they obviously got happier recording it. I think that's what happened. They started off in the depths of pit of despair, and then by the end of it, they were having quite a good time. Said they'd been ill by the end of it, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about some highs and lows then, gents. Mark, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, it's really quite easy for me. Cracker Man, by quite a long way, is um, my highlight on the album. Piece of Pie was just uh, an instantly forgettable grunge dirge. Steve? Mm, yeah, well, the high is easy for me as well. Naked Sunday, just think that's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work, and I wasn't expecting it, which is always a nice thing to happen. And my low, I don't need to look much beyond where the river goes. It goes nowhere. That's where it goes. For me, Sin and Piece of Pie share bottom bill. And I just still absolutely love Plush. Very interesting discussion. I might uh, pluck up the courage to pick another from this genre in about another 24 episodes. Uh, But I suppose uh, with that, the third of our three albums from 1992, we should move on to giving every one of these tracks a score. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so there you have it. 1992 has been revisited, and let's see how it stacks up score-wise. I open proceedings with Hardline's Double Eclipse, a little-known gem, which has produced the only 10 of the night from Mark, with rhythm from a red car. Scores on the doors then. Richard, least impressed, 6.95, followed by me, 7.4, and Mark, in gushy mood, went 8.009 for a final score of 7.45. Mark, kiss. And Revenge. Yep, so uh, Kiss's first album of the 1990s. Well, this was, I suppose, pretty much as I expected, really. Steve, you scored it the lowest at 6.458. Richard, you had it uh, slightly higher, 6.791 or 6.792. And I suppose no surprises that I scored it a little bit higher than that, 7.34, to give it an overall album average of 6.87 and all the twos. Richard, Stone Temple Pilots. Yes, I'm pleased that there isn't a five point something in this. So uh, that's good. Mark, you scored it a 6.69. Steve, very similar, 6.60. And I was slightly higher on a 7.05. And that gave Stone Temple Pilots Core a grand total of 6.78. So I guess the next thing we need to do is uh, see where they end up in the Hall of Fame. So let's head over there and just talk through what tonight's show has done to the big list. It's time to put the rock in a hard place 
opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so in reverse order, Core scored the lowest this evening. So that goes into a list that now at number 72, that goes in at number 63, squeezed between somewhere where I'd quite like to be squeezed, between the Runaways and Vixen. Two, three places above that at number 60, uh, Revenge. They are squeezed between the possibly less appealing Judas Priest and Wasp. The Joker in the pack this week, Double Eclipse, Hardline, neither Richard nor I had heard it before, came from Steve. That comes in at number 41 between Gillen and Rock Goddess. So um, that's respectable, isn't it, for all of them? Yeah, we always felt that these wouldn't necessarily be threatening 30s and 20s, but good to see that, yeah, they're all in a a reasonable place. I think it's going to get very interesting in that sort of bottom them 10 or 15 so let, let's see whether stone temple pilots will maintain that kind of position or they go a bit lower i guess it depends on which which is the next grunge album i bring <laughs> <laughs> i dare say as soon as um, as soon as tico spat out 1992 we were all straight onto wikipedia when we were checking out what albums had come out that year and a, and, and a cursory glance of the list you, you never kind of felt there was a top 20 album hidden in there anywhere really i mean i not that it's a bad year for rock, but it was a bad year for rock. And we've got nothing in the top 40, never mind the top 20. And just for context, by the way, Double Eclipse, Hardline, that has come into the Hall of Fame just three places below Accepts, Balls, Balls to the Wall, and four places below Ace of Spades. So it's not, not at all bad. The, the interesting thing is Led Zeppelin 4 and Machine Head still look completely unassailable, don't they, at the top? They, they unquestionably do. And, and we, we, we gave them a nudge in episode 20. So that's how long it takes, doesn't it? They've been there since episode three, those two, at one and two. And yeah, Metallica gave them a nudge. Well, I know there's a couple of big albums yet to play. We haven't touched Def Leppard yet or Scorpions or, you know, one or two others. So, yeah, the there's, there's some big tickets out there. But yeah, no, they, they do look kind of sailor at the moment. This is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So there we go. There is another episode all sorted and on our shelf in our Hall of Fame. So 1992. We look forward to seeing you again next time. Thanks very much again for your company. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll be with you again very soon. See ya. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 